Hey all, Oscar here. Just a very quick reminder that as we enter our ninth year of We Like Movies, it really does us a solid if you give us a rating, a review, a subscribe on iTunes, check us out on Stitcher, we're even on Spotify now. So we appreciate your continued support. Just help us spread the word. Happy 2019. What are we waiting for? Action! Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Now we're talking business. Let's talk business. Yeah, let's talk business. Oh, you guys like like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie and not a film. We have a new category this year. Best film ever made by a human being. You should have got Oscar. Who are you working for? The Knutsons. Who, who the f*** are the Knutsons? These are big movies think about big men in tights. Roll that mother camera, Wolfie. Kiss my ass. Yeah! We like movies. This is business, and this man is taking it very, very personal. Hello, everybody. This is Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies Retrospectating 1999 Run, Lola Run, or known in its native German, Lola Rent. Guten Tag, my friend. It's uh, it's nice to be talking about a German film with you for the first time in a while. Guten Tag, Matthias. <laughs> my German my German name was Dirk, uh, Dirk yes. because I had just seen um, uh, Boogie Nights when we first started mm-hmm. taking German in 1997. And your German name was? Detlef. Detlef, that's right. Because pretty, I love Detlef Shrimp. Pretty classy. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that, that says everything you need to know about where our heads were at in 1997 <laughs> when we started taking German in high school. You yep. were thinking about the Sonics, and I was thinking about Boogie Night. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so uh, Run, Lola, Run. This is a controversial choice for this retrospectating series, and I'm ready to take all of the guff for it. Uh, come at me, people. If you want to talk about the fact that this is not technically a 1999 movie, let's get into it leave comments in the comment section email us at wlmpodcast at gmail.com tell me what an asshole i am this was all my idea oscar had nothing to do with forcing this film into this series because i really really wanted to talk about it i haven't seen it in years and it came out in the united states on june 18th 1999 yeah i mean this is a podcast about nostalgia and in context and whatever and it, this is not just a cynical ploy to drum up uh, some fake controversy within the very niche podcast realm <laughs> i accept your explanation and i and i and i won't uh, i won't quibble with it i think it makes sense you know what are release dates anyway it's all arbitrary what is time matt yeah plus it didn't make it to sundance until january of 99 mm-hmm. where it won an audience award and uh, and it also won the uh, golden space needle at the uh, seattle international film festival in june wow. of 1999 so really feel like uh, there's there's a lot of reasons that that this movie deserves to be spoken about in this uh, pivotal year that this mm-hmm. series revolves around. So yeah, we're, we're not trying to force anything here necessarily. This is our podcast. We make up the rules. German film came out in the States June 18th, 1999, and uh, that's when I saw it. I saw it. I was there fucking opening weekend. I think I had probably caught a review of it, maybe an Entertainment Weekly or Premiere, Movie Line, something like that. This, this movie was actually on my radar. I remember... Being aware of this movie, this is one of the you know early movie internet uh, buzz films, obviously for its 
film festival entries and, and whatnot, but I definitely was not there opening night, and I saw it uh, for the first time when you maybe saw it for the second or third time in uh, Frautzaug's uh, German class, I think, the, the next year, right? I mean, it was specifically kind of zeitgeisty for us because we were thinking a lot about that part of the world, and we were attempting to speak that language badly, yes. but attempting it. Attempting, and I don't remember if we watched it with subtitles or without. Oh, that's interesting. But uh, it's a really good movie for uh, you know you don't really need the subtitles all that much to be honest. You know, it's 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 all action. You can you could watch it with the sound off if you needed to. Sure. Yeah. So I, I don't I don't remember exactly why we watched it. I it feels like maybe you had brought it up or it was like you said zeitgeisty, but. I think probably in the fall of 1999 is when it was maybe out on VHS or DVD and we we gave it a go. Sounds about right. And it's also a good movie if you just are trying to bone up on your German sort of like one word at a time. Because (laughs) because a lot of the movie is just people just like screaming, Voss! Or, you know, Varum! You know, (laughs) Vo! It's it's a lot of very just like angry kind of like heightened yelling. And occasionally it's, it's one word at a time. But also is very good about mixing up the formats, right? Obviously, you get the live-action stuff, but you also get a lot of animated stuff. You get a really crazy sort of opening prologue with, like, you know, miniatures and uh, time-lapse photography and Mm -hmm. text effects. And, I mean, it's just a really busy movie. It's throwing a lot of shit at you, but it it never... It doesn't feel all that jumbled. It does feel sort of strategic in in, in what it's doing. So, rewatching it now, I hadn't seen it in years, like you. It, It held up better than... And I better than I thought it would. I don't know why I would have been skeptical, but I just you know kind of am from some anything twenty years ago. But uh, man, it's just a tight, propulsive little movie, Matt. It made it had such an effect on me in nineteen ninety nine. You know, it made me feel so smart. It made me feel like such a sophisticated, you know, sixteen year old. A cinephile, you know, student of international cinema, which I certainly wasn't, but it made me feel like I was. And as a result, I've been kind of scared to revisit it. It, it, it's yeah. one of those movies, you know, maybe like The Usual Suspects, for example, that sure, you know sure, had sure. such an effect on you at such a formative age, and then you're afraid to go back to it because you're afraid it's not going to hold up or it's going to make you feel silly for lionizing it the way you did at a young age. It's been well over a decade since I've seen this, and uh, goddamn, I, I think it's just fucking tremendous. Like I, mm-hmm. I just, I had such a huge smile on my face the other day when I revisited it. And honestly, like I've watched it twice in the last week because I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And and like you said, it's eighty minutes long, so it's a pretty quick, easy. Yeah, there's. I mean, there's nothing boring. It's just a ticking clock the entire time, <laughs> yes. three different times in a row, right? Yeah, and it's uh, it's three twenty minute segments, right? I mean, it, like I said, it's less, eighty minutes. Little tiny interstitials in between. Exactly. So the interstitial stuff, the credits, um, the little love scenes, you know, the postcoital scenes or whatever they are, interstitials. They they sort of. Um, thicken out the running time to about 80 minutes but i think it's technically a triptych of 20 of three 20 minute scenes and it, yeah, it almost feels yeah television episodic in that way kind of sure uh, from scene to scene because they're not jumping between the, the the three times it just it just restarts between every interstitial yeah i mean that's interesting they brought up the the foreign film thing and you know we were 16 again we weren't all that sophisticated at the time thinking back to 99 it was a lot more difficult to get a hold of foreign cinema you know we had scarecrow video or whatever in town but i didn't i didn't spend a lot of time there um you know we we were mostly multiplexes even this even the film you know the cinemas that have turned into sort of more independent foreign based were were multiplex first run movies at the time was this like one of your first 
cinematic entries into foreign cinema. I know we had Life is Beautiful a couple years before. Sure. Uh, the year before, uh, right? And it wasn't Life is Beautiful 98? 98 or 97. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, 98 sounds right. It was nominated against Shakespeare in exactly. Love. Exactly. The reason that Sam I know Brian. it was 98 yeah. was because that was the year when we had three World War II films. And two Queen Elizabeth movies. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. That's uh, Yeah, right? Yeah, Shakespeare in Love and, and, and Elizabeth. And then you had Life is Beautiful, Thin Red Line, and Saving Private Ryan. To answer your question, probably. Crouching Tiger is a year later, and that sort of fucking blew the doors off of the whole foreign language uh, in the multiplex idea, right? Yeah. Um, So, yeah. I mean, I don't think it was the first foreign film I'd seen in the theater, but it was certainly one of the first. And it it had much more of an impact on me than any foreign film I'd seen in a theater up to that point, obviously. And honestly, I saw it at a pretty big movie theater. I saw it at exactly the same theater where I saw Go and uh, The Matrix. Uh, Interesting. The Factoria, the Cineplex Odeon Factoria, which is a shithole of a theater. Um, it's actually still there, weirdly enough, in Factoria, yeah, Washington. But yeah, walked out of it feeling invigorated and, and quite intelligent and kind of having a little bit of a similar response to it that I had to go thinking I need to explore this whole electronic music thing a little bit further like this is <laughs> you know and it was shortly thereafter that I would buy my first turntables and you know start looking into Paul Van Dyke and Paul Oakenfold and you know <laughs> Daft Punk and stuff so honestly like you can look at this movie as being sort of like an MTV influence film but I almost feel like this style of movie is almost like post MTV in a lot of ways. Like, I feel like music videos actually started to be influenced by the cinema. You know, if the cinema was influenced by the mu- by music videos in the 80s and 90s, by this point of the late 90s, I feel like music videos start to actually get influenced by cinema. Yeah, especially in action filmmaking. I mean, I, I was looking at sort of some box office stuff of 80s action movies, a lot of buddy cop stuff, a lot of bad synth soundtracks. Um, sure. But the but the 90s were sort of more sweeping orchestral things. And then I think Run, Little Run, I don't know if it was the impetus, but sort of set off in the 2000s, you know, your, your Bourne movies, stuff like that, with maybe more of a, an electronic bent to it. But going back here, Matt, so you're saying that, you know, the themes of Run, Lola Run, sort of fatalism versus determinism and sort of chaos theory stuff. Mm, yeah, free will, fate, chance, yeah. destiny, cause and effect. And even yeah. this, there's even this theory, which I wasn't even really that familiar with until I did a little research following my my recent viewing, compatibilism, okay. which is the belief that free will and determinism are mutually compatible and that it is possible to live in both without being logically inconsistent. Compatibilist believe, I'm, this is, I'm, I'm reading, yeah. I'm reading this off Wikipedia. <laughs> Compatibilist, <laughs> Compatibilist believe freedom can be present or absent in situations for reasons that have nothing to do with metaphysics. They define free will as a freedom to act according to one's motives without arbitrary hindrance from other individuals or institutions. Okay. So it's almost, uh, the way that I read that is kind of like force of will. And what's so interesting about Lola throughout this movie is that she actually like bends the confines, the strictures of time of like temporality or even reality to her will because mm-hmm. she has a goal that needs to be accomplished and her sort of primal scream almost symbolizes the fact that she is undaunted she will not she will accomplish this goal come hell or high water right i mean it, it, it's sort of like the idea of uh you know in an emergency situation if someone's stuck under a car people can garner super strength in the moment right <laughs> yes exactly sure and yeah. um there's even a point in the film where 
she basically sort of like redefines what chance and probability even mean, right? Like during mm-hmm. the, the roulette table scene, she screams so loudly that she basically like breaks probability. In a lot of ways, that really is kind of like the climax of the film because that's when she finally like really achieves the goal and gets the money without having to like commit any crimes. That is true. Although she won't be allowed back in that casino. I <laughs> sure. guarantee you that. But she, she didn't technically, <laughs> she didn't technically cheat. She no. just, she just broke probability by screaming so loudly right yeah i mean it's like if they wouldn't allow any x-men who could like see through cards into a (laughs) casino right so if you're able to break time and space you probably you're not gonna be allowed in that institution anymore that's uh, something guys like you and i would aspire to is someday being kicked out of you know not being allowed back into a casino because we won too much yes i would i do aspire to that there was uh When I was 22 and I was backpacking around Europe, I ended up in Monte Carlo and I was really, really down on my luck. I was like completely broke and I was going to have to like call my parents and they were going to have to wire me money or whatever because I didn't have money for hostels or trains. I had not done a very good job budgeting up to this point in the trip. Mm -hmm. And I had just like a few euros uh, rattling around in my pocket and I wandered into that big grand casino in Monte Carlo, you know, that you mm-hmm. see at the beginning of Goldeneye. And I was like, all right, I'll never forget. I'm broke, but I'll never forgive myself if I don't make one bet in like the world's most famous casino. So I went in there. They almost didn't want to let me in because I was just like sweaty and, you yeah. know, t- jeans and a t-shirt and my my Converse. and it's blatantly American. Exactly. And I got my backpack on. So they finally let me in. I had just enough money to make one bet. Five dollars, five euros rather, was the minimum bet at roulette. Mm-hmm. So I put five dollars on red three, which is my favorite number. Or five euros. It's 17 to one, right? So I put five euros down. Well, it should be, no, it's like 31 to one or something, right? 35 it, to one. 35, 35 to one. one. 35 yeah, yeah. to one. Exactly. So I put it down on the red three. He spins it. It's a single roll bet and goddamn if that red three didn't pop up no shit and i collected my 150 euros which was enough money to get me on a train to get to uh, italy <laughs> uh, i stopped at the bar on the way out and quickly had uh, a little uh, uh, vodka martini in honor of uh, mr bond and then i went and got on a train and got out of there as quickly as i could that's my monte carlo story wow so you uh <laughs> it's 100 percent true you believe in this shit that's incredible. i kind of do yeah because i needed it so badly <laughs> yeah well i was gonna say so run little run the movie about these sort of themes uh, sort of transcended into your life seeing Run Little Run and becoming interested in foreign film and electronic music. Absolutely. Yeah. What a thing. Two, two of the things that I really, you know, threw myself into head first in college. But so so foreign cinema, I want to get back to this for a sec, but sure. I, I presume you'd seen Life is Beautiful in, in theaters, right? The year before? Yes, with my with my mother at the Harvard Exit Theater in Seattle. Yeah, I, I think I did the same thing. Before that and even after that, like DVDs, like renting from Blockbuster, I had not really gotten into it. And I remember Life is Beautiful just around that time. I, I really did start trying to get into stuff. I don't remember specific movies all that much. I remember, you know, all about my mother. I was I, I delved into Almodovar a little bit. Sure. But you, it's hard to figure out where to start. I mean, you didn't have the resources you have nowadays or the, or the list of foreign films. Or It was interesting that this was the movie that sort of I'm not saying it, it set off like a a love of foreign cinema with within Americans, but this was a movie that ended up in multiplexes is super interesting and kind of bizarre, right? P.S. All About My Mother also a nineteen ninety nine film. There you go. I don't mean this as a slight to the film. I don't mean this as an insult. But it is a very good sort of like entry level point into European cinema, right? Yeah. <laughs> Play school, my first foreign film. Because like you said, it works really well as an action movie. It works well as a crime film. Obviously, American audiences love that. And, you know, it's short. It's simple. 
Uh, it's not, it doesn't have a lot of sort of like the melodrama or the um, pretentious artsiness that I think a lot of uh, naive American audiences equate with, with international, with foreign films. So it is a pretty easy entry point, And that's probably, that probably has a lot to do with why it was actually a big hit in this country. It did uh, $7 million in the U.S. alone, $23 million worldwide on a $2 million budget. Mm-hmm. Pretty darn good. And uh, yeah, won awards at festivals all over the world. Oddly enough, did not get nominated. It did not get nominated for the foreign film Oscar, which is strange to me because it was this it was this huge hit, but it was also critically acclaimed. Tom Teichfer has had a has had an interesting career. He did not end up with the career that I expected for him. He hasn't really been able to capitalize. I mean, he's he's successful. Don't get me wrong. He's had a very interesting collaborative relationship with the uh, Wachowski siblings, mm-hmm. which is interesting because they obviously had a, a watershed film in '99 as well. Um, you know, they created Sense Eight together. Tykefer's directed many episodes of that show. He obviously co-directed Cloud Atlas with them, which actually has a lot of sort of thematic overlap with Run Lola Run. Uh, but he has not really been able to sort of function as an international internationally successful filmmaker you know at, at the time in 99 people were calling him the second coming right after run lola run they're like this is it this is the guy this is a fucking visionary yeah and you know between the international with uh with naomi watson clive owen and perfume the story of a murderer and the warrior and the princess i mean he just hasn't really i mean this is the guy who should have been directing you know the born ultimatum or whatever right like after run lola run this is the guy who should have been like an action auteur. Yeah, you'd have thought so, and I I wonder if he's just kind of a weird guy, and you know, pretentious might not be the right word, but someone who doesn't want to sell out, I suppose. Okay. You know, I don't know too much about him personally. It does seem like he kind of wants to do his own own thing, but you know, looking at his, I mean, he has made some Hollywood adjacent movies. You know, Perfume International, like you said, Cloud Atlas was a huge endeavor. Hologram for the King. Oh movie, yeah, a movie I still have not seen, but seems to have pretty good reviews. And stars Tom Hanks and was sort of just buried. It, it, it's sort of an outlier of a film, but it seems to me that that movie is going to have some sort of like cult legacy. Like people who love that movie are very, very passionate about defending it yeah it's a dave eggers novel i think yeah i hear it's quite good it's something i I definitely want to check out at some point but yeah i mean that and that's that he does that right after cloud atlas right so tom he and tom hanks obviously had a very good experience on cloud atlas everybody claims to have had a great experience on cloud atlas like that entire cast says they had an amazing experience everybody loves the wachowskis everybody loves tom teichver the film was obviously kind of a flop but the cast has nothing but great things to say about it and uh, you and i have, have obviously been big defenders of it over the years it's a masterpiece man <laughs> i mean i uh i'm not so sure if i go so far as to use the <laughs> m word but I, I i love it and i revisit it all the time and i really feel like that is that is the fulfillment of the promise of run lola run in a lot of ways sure all right, especially because Teichfer is obviously is also a musician, a very accomplished musician as well. He mm-hmm. composed most of the music for Run Lola Run, and he and his partners, uh, Klimek and Reinhold, I want to say. Sure, sounds Does right. Does that sound right? Johnny Klimek and something. Reinhold? Those sound like ver- uh, German like Germans. Yeah. yeah, I'm sorry, Reinhold Heil. <laughs> wow, <Whoa>. and uh, <laughs> Johnny Klimek, they're co-composers. And interestingly enough, Reinhold Heil and Johnny Klimek composed all the music for all three seasons and the most recent film of uh, Deadwood. Okay. And then they they obviously composed all the music for Cloud Atlas, which is just one of the great scores of the last decade, mm-hmm. I would say. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, so, it is for sure. And and it's interesting. I mean, this film obviously is wall to wall electronic music for the most part, but then and then Cloud Atlas is just all this like sweeping, just gorgeous orchestral stuff, right? Yeah, so, I mean, and these like, guys got some fucking range. Yeah, and, and the you know you can tell that in Cloud Atlas especially there is collaboration between the musicians and the filmmakers because like the music thematically crescendos at all the right points and like we've talked about before just sort of how you know the 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 separate timelines sort of merge together in these sort of aha profound epiphanic moments or whatever. Good word. The, yeah, it's a, I think it's a real word, but we'll it is. see. It yeah, is. Absolutely. I use it all the time. <laughs> of, course, of course you do. <laughs> Which I, I guess is not, is not necessarily an indication that it's real. But. Um, you want to hear a really good fun fact? Please. About Lamarillo? Film was the initial inspiration for the three-day cycle in Legend of Zelda Majora's Mask, the sequel to Ocarina of Time. I had that in my notes as well, yes. That's, that makes me so happy that that's the case. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, in terms of this film's influence and its legacy, you know, I, f- I feel like you really don't get Run Lola Run without something like Train Spotting, mm-hmm. which I think has, uh, you know, is, is it obviously a very influential film from the mid 90s. And uh, the visual audaciousness of that movie, I think, gives birth to something like Run Lola Run. And then because of Rola- Run Lola Run, I think you get something like Requiem for a Dream the next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get Amelie two years later. You know, you get Irreversible three years later from uh, Gaspar Noe, and then eventually his Enter the Void. And then really something like Holy Motors, honestly, uh, about 13 years later, I think owes something to Run Lola Run. And then the one that I feel is the most conspicuous spiritual sequel is um, Sebastian Schill's Victoria from 2016. Okay. And what's interesting about, I'm sorry, Sebastian Shipper is his name. One of my favorite films of the last 20 years. That's the movie that takes place over the course of one night, but it's all shot. It's all one take, right? It's yeah. all in real time. Yeah. Sebastian Shipper's actually in Run Lola Run. Oh. He's uh, he's the guy on the bike. He's the guy who keeps trying to sell Lola the bike. <laughs> nice. And then he eventually sells it. He eventually sells it to the homeless guy. Maybe this is just me not having paid attention, but has this movie been sort of in the conversation with people in terms of its legacy and its its influence on on cinema? Like, have you heard specifically anyone talk about this movie's influence on on, on their work? Isn't it strange that that's one of the reasons that I really wanted us to discuss this and why I wanted to shoehorn this film into this series was that I feel like it doesn't get talked about. And I want to talk about why it doesn't get talked about. What is, does this movie have a bad reputation? Does this, is this movie thought of as sort of like all gimmick? You know, is it, is it thought of as a novelty movie? Well, I will say on rewatch, you know, this movie is it's just 80 minutes of sort of propulsive fun. I don't really buy into sort of the depth of it or ter- like these sort of, like I said, these free will determinism themes. It all seems very, you know, dorm room philosophy level to me. In terms of it being a movie that you sit back and think about and go, whoa, man, they really, they really set my mind ablaze. Uh, that's not this movie. For me, this is a pretty surface level, but that doesn't take anything away from the filmmaking and, and how sort of inspiring this may have been to other directors but maybe that is sort of the you know the perspective of 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 cinephiles or whatever that this movie is kind of just a a one-off and disposable and you know if tom tykor had become more famous and had made some you know if he had been the director of born identity uh this pro this movie would probably more famous by proxy right as like Mm -hmm. this big filmmakers you know reservoir dogs or whatever you know whatever i think tom tykor's lack of sort of fame is probably the biggest reason why this movie does not get talked about because of the fact that he never was able to 
truly capitalize on the promise of this. Yeah. It's kind of gotten, it's been sort of like shuffled to into the filing cabinet of late 90s novelties. Yeah, probably. I, I appreciate the idea that this is maybe a movie for, you know, college freshmen mm-hmm. to uh, to revisit, you know, in between bong rips in their, in their dorm. Yeah. But I, I really think that there's actually quite a bit more going on here than really meets the eye. I, I really think it's kind of like a sophisticated, you know, like it may not necessarily solve any of these things in a satisfying metaphysical way, but it asks a lot of really interesting questions and it deals with them visually in a particularly um, effective way. Okay. You know, just, it's just like all of the crazy sort of like Chris Marker inspired sliding door stuff. I still find to be really, really unique and inventive, you know, and I feel like that's something that's kind of been... Uh, revisited in lesser films over the course of the last 20 years. Do you think this movie was inspired by Sliding Doors? came out the year before. Oh, but Sliding <laughs> Doors predates this movie. Yeah. Well, oh, interesting. It came out in 98. Um, okay, all right. So, uh, so yeah, Which is when this movie technically came out, right? Yeah, that's true. Hmm, which came first, the chicken or the egg? Is it is it deep? No, not necessarily. Is it smart? I think so. You know, and I think it, you know, ideas of fate, ideas of cause and effect, you know, the butterfly effect, if you will. I think the way, you know, the delineation you made there of uh, you can be smart and not deep at the same time. I think that's true. <laughs> They're not mutually exclusive, right? So that's what, I, that's what I try to convince every woman that I go on a date with. Right? <laughs> there you go. Um, of course, it's it's always fun to do alternate history or sort of alternate timeline stuff. Like, that's a fun thing to do. I, I just like, I like the fact that there's nothing sort of pious or just judgmental about any of these alternate realities right like i love the fact that it has nothing to do with how good these people are you know it's like completely random and it's almost nihilistic in that way which i appreciate right Mm -hmm. she Mm -hmm. bumps into somebody and she basically and their life you know they only live for another 72 hours or whatever or she bumps into them 30 seconds later and they end up winning the lottery or something like that right yeah i just like the randomness of it and the fact that it has nothing to do with fate it's just it's just sort of like nihilistic causality yes maybe it's because i just agree with all that (laughs) (laughs) that that it it seems not very i don't know awe-inspiring to me but the legacy certainly isn't about how profound and deep this movie is right i mean the the legacy of this movie in as much as there is one is the the style right and and you know whatever the use of music and sort of the propulsiveness of the of the film, right? You know, I don't think we're, there's going to be books written on the quote unquote philosophy of Run Lola Run necessarily. But I will say, having spent the last couple of years sort of delving into deep academia and getting particularly fascinated by the idea of what the the great uh, you know critical study scholar Thomas Elsesser calls the quote unquote mind game film, mm-hmm. which is sort of a um, it's sort of a phenomenon that came of age uh, around the turn of the 21st century and includes, you know, films like Source Code or Memento, obviously, you know, Inception, Arrival, mm-hmm. Irreversible, Mulholland Drive, for that matter. I really feel like this film deserves to be part of that conversation and about those kinds of narratively experimental films. Sure. And films that deal with temporality in a really interesting way. And, uh, you know, when I was a Columbia in the film department last couple years, um, I actually wrote my thesis project about this concept I was developing called temporal dynamics, uh, which was about these kinds of movies and the way that they deal with time as sort of like the principal driving narrative force. Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, in a lot of ways, it was an excuse for me to break down, you know, Inception, Memento, and Dunkirk to the granular, to the granular temporal level, right? Sure. And the way that uh, that I, I feel Nolan deals explicitly with temporality in all of his films, actually. Mm-hmm. But um, one of my go-to texts while I was writing this um, thesis was a book called Puzzle Films, which is a collection of essays by the aforementioned Elsesser, by Warren Buckland, by this guy, Michael Weddle, mm-hmm. who wrote an essay called Backbeat and Overlap, Time, Place, and Character Subjectivity in Run, Lola, Run. Okay. And I'll quote from him briefly here. The techno soundtrack established dialectical relation between motives of the movie, rhythm, repetition, and interval among various spatio-temporal logics. This produces unification of contradictions like time and space, or the cyclical and the linear. Mm-hmm. And I really feel like Run, Lola, Run is, a, is an interesting sort of visual representation of the idea of time, right? Mm-hmm. And it's, it's all over the film. I and mean, the movie starts with, uh, with the pendulum swing of a cuckoo clock basically right yeah and visual representations of time are all over this thing i mean it's not subtle but it doesn't need to be because there's nothing subtle about this movie right no there's not so i i like thinking of the film as kind of a treatise on the idea of time and the fact that time can only really be harnessed and sort of reorganized in movies movies can control time in a way that we can't in real life, right? And that's sure. one of the most inspiring and exciting things about film. And I really feel like that's what somebody like Christopher Nolan loves about the cinema is his ability to tell the story, you know, to make a movie like Dunkirk, which basically just wrangles time and sort of like bends it to his will. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense. Run, Lola, Run is a quick and dirty, you know, just kind of like short, simple, fun a distillation of that kind of cinematic of, of that kind of creative power mm-hmm. which i appreciate and i find to be really inspiring yeah i mean there's always been that trope in movies of sort of the the fake dream sequence right of of how one situation could go right and then you sort of rewind back to the the reality of it and this is sort of the you know the maybe the logical extension of that where you just see three different versions and it's it's pretty it's you know it, it's it's a simple conceit but uh, when you do it so blatantly, it's very effective, right? I mean, they always say writing narratives, right? Like one of the most effective things to do is have a ticking clock, right? And you have to create a way for for there to be some sort of ticking clock and there to be some sort of urgency. But the easiest way to create a ticking clock is to literally have a ticking clock, right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> so like, okay, we have 20 minutes and that is that. It's kind of an audacious idea just to be like, okay, what would normally be the last 20 minutes, just the, the climax of a film, we're just going to make a movie where it's three climaxes. That's great. Yeah, that, that's a, I think that's a really uh, strong way of putting it. I never thought of it that way. Again, if, if you find this kind of stuff to be sort of a cheat or just a gimmick, then I could certainly understand that the movie could become um, you know, a little tedious, a little disposable perhaps. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but, but I also think you're coming off of, you know, you're obviously about five years removed from Pulp Fiction at this point, but people are really excited about these types of crime stories in cinema, right? Yes. And that movie was all about narrative experimentation, right? And mm-hmm. mess, messing with timelines, non-linear reorganization. Yeah. So I feel and, like... And even of, stories within stories, right? Absolutely, so, yeah. Like the, the little one-offs with people she runs into and we see their sort of fate and play out. So I, I really feel like something like Run, Lola, Run is inevitable in 90s cinema. And I'm just so impressed by Teichfer's ability to take all of these ideas and take all of these influences and put something together that's so darn like tight and effective 
and um, doesn't take itself too seriously and is still sort of visually kind of audacious. I mean, I'll put the image of Franca Potente, you know, running through Berlin with her, you know, red hair streaking behind her. I'll put that up next to any of the most iconic images from cinema of the 90s, right? Sure. Like when I think back to 90s cinema, that's that's one of the first things that comes to mind for me. I mean, it's just an instantly iconic image. Yeah. So much so that when I, I, you know, I made a film a couple years back and the color of our heroine's hair was going to play a pretty significant part in the narrative and it's even in the title of the film and I kept using Franco Potente's hair color from Run, Lola, Run as a reference when I was talking to our uh, makeup artist and our costume designer. Mm-hmm. And uh, they they pushed back a lot at the very beginning because they're like, it's just too much. It's too far. It's too vibrant. It's too crazy. And, you know, and I don't take a lot of credit for a lot of things about that film. And I'm certainly not, um, I'm not egotistical about, <laughs> about it in any sort of way. But that is one of the few things I will take credit for is the fact that I kept insisting we needed to go more vibrant we needed to go more red and they more kept, red they kept pushing back and i was i was pretty adamant about it and then when they finally saw it on screen they were just like yeah you're right <laughs> we, that's exactly as red as we should have gone because yeah that's what the camera sees it needs to be it needs to be vibrant it needs to be sharp and and the fact that her hair color in this i mean honestly just her whole aesthetic that those crazy green pants she's wearing the uh, the tattoos around her midsection i mean there's just so much going on with this character mm-hmm. she just sort of like immediately just burns herself into your sense memory um i have a two-part question for you please all right so you know, talking about its sort of lack of, of legacy or the fact that that's not really in the conversation anymore, do you think part of that is because of the perceived gimmickry of the of the narrative of the story? And second part of that, I mean, and I'm not using gimmickry in a pejorative sense, just like it's a non-traditional narrative. Are you surprised we haven't seen more sort of maybe smaller, independent, well-renowned movies that do employ like real sort of gimmicks i guess we have had some you know holy motors you brought up Mm. um not holy motors sorry uh yeah i brought up holy motors and enter the void i suppose enter the void yes um irreversible irreversible yeah i mean do you do you you think there should be more sort of experimentation with narrative and and to do it in a simple you know maybe seemingly crowd-pleasing manner in film yes I do, but I'm biased, so I'm probably not the right person to ask this question. You know, like yeah. I, I eat that shit up. Like I love source code, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I like all these kinds of movies. Obviously, I, I ride for Memento super hard. So much of Christopher Nolan's career has, you know, so much of his early career at least, has revolved around this kind of stuff. Sure. So I, uh, I've always been into it. I'm really invested in it, and a lot of the stuff that I write is basically ripping off these kinds of gimmicks, storytelling sure. gimmicks, if you will. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I think even somebody like Charlie Kaufman is probably influenced by this kind of stuff. Yeah. Right? But his stuff um, is not simple. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, certainly some more than others. His, his stuff is also so emotionally complex. Yeah, and something like Anomalisa, which is just such a dark, negative weird way to see the world but yeah and that's gimmickry too you know that like is that, that's, sure. i mean the fact that everything is projected onto these onto these stop motion figurines mm-hmm. so i don't think there's anything wrong with that i think i think you just need to you need to find your vehicle right you need yeah. to find your take and some you know look at something like nick of time which came out what 95 yeah four years before mm-hmm. and that doesn't work but it's no. it's equally 
ostentatious and impressive in terms of its commitment to a gimmick. Yes, right. That's true. But I, I don't think I'm really answering your question. You're, you're saying you're asking why aren't there more of these type of films, or why are they not more popular? Yeah, why are they not popular, and why are they not sort of well renowned when they do maybe get some some traction? And do you think that's part of the reason why Run Little Run is not as? Uh... I'm, I'm fascinated by your by your thought that um, Tykeverse sort of inability to capitalize on the promise of this might have something to do with the fact that the legacy might be tarnished. I'm not saying tarnished. It's just see, The movie seems sort of forgotten at this point, doesn't it? After 100%, yeah. I mean, honestly, like it hadn't even really occurred to me inst- until I started to crunch the numbers on the release date. I was like, you know what? That's that. This movie's significant. This movie means something, and this movie needs to be rediscovered. And maybe people will rewatch it, and maybe people will say, yeah, that just looks like late... That movie is a total time capsule of the late 90s, and the the sort of intellectual side of it does not hold up whatsoever. And and I'm I'm totally fine with that. I guess, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, it, it is it, it can't do anything but hold up well. I mean, it's like I said, 81 minutes, propulsive, entertaining, action packed. Like there's there's no reason that this should age in any way, right? Uh, j- just from an aesthetic standpoint, or even from a musical standpoint, mm-hmm. uh, does it feel dated to you? Like, can you divorce yourself from your relationship with it and just look at it and say, boy, that really looks like a 90s time capsule? And, and that's not even necessarily meant as a slight. If it is a 90s time capsule, not even necessarily a bad thing. But watching it, does, is that what it feels like to you? Can you can you carbon date it based on the aesthetics of it? Uh, I mean, not, not really. I mean, I, the fashion, I guess. I mean, if you show this to someone today and they had never heard of it and you told them it was filmed in Germany, they'd be like, oh, I guess Germans are just a little behind fashion-wise, <laughs> um, which is believable probably. Uh, so, yeah, I don't think there's anything else. I mean, the music holds up. I mean, there are movies that have, you know, the the, the soundtrack kind of reminded me of the, you know, the Chemical Brothers soundtrack for Hannah, right? Sure, 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 sure. Uh, so I'm not, yeah, I don't think any of it feels just like embarrassingly dated in any way. I was even thinking about Swordfish, which sure. came uh, a couple years later. <laughs> that and, movie's uh, dated in other ways, for sure. <laughs> but I think that, isn't that, isn't that Junkie, Junkie XL? I think? Paul Oakenfold, Paul Oakenfold did the, uh, did the the soundtrack for swordfish but yeah i mean i i feel like you know i brought up train spotting earlier you know danny boyle was super dialed into like this kind of filmmaking you know honestly throughout his entire career i think you can even really draw sort of influence to 127 hours and uh, slumdog millionaire for that sure. matter from run run lola run now maybe you could make the argument that danny boyle was actually inventing things that tykver was ripping off so maybe he was way ahead of Tykeford to begin with because Train Spotting and uh, Shallow Grave obviously came earlier. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I don't know there's just something about the aesthetic of Slumdog Millionaire, especially because that movie also deals with like alternate realities, right? And it also deals with yes. like s- sort of sliding door scenarios and stuff. And then you know you get to Cloud Atlas, and he's interested in a lot of the same stuff, which is probably why he was drawn to the Wachowskis, which is why they brought him onto that film. Cloud Atlas is almost like a more sophisticated is the wrong word i mean run lola run is the is the is sort of like the rave version of this kind of intellectualism and then cloud atlas is like the orchestral ver. you know it's like the classical yeah. music version of you know uh, dissecting the same kinds <laughs> of sort of you know metaphysical arguments yeah i like that i do believe that Tykver had the rights to Cloud Atlas before the Wachowskis. I believe it was him okay. first, and then the Wachowskis came on to, I don't, I don't know, if to help sell it or help get a budget or, or whatever, but okay. I, I think he was the first to it. 
Um, and clearly they have a great working relationship. Obviously they went on to work together and sense eight and other stuff. So yeah, he definitely is dialed into, to that sort of, those sort of themes and ideas. Well, when we do our eventual, you know, cloud Atlas reevaluation someday, we will have to dig into which came first because there are stories that Natalie Portman was reading cloud Atlas on the set of V for Vendetta Ah. and gave it to the Wachowskis. But right around the same time, she was also starring in Tom Tykver's uh, 10 minute segment for Paris Jatem. Interesting. So I want, so it's, this is all about Natalie. I think so. I think you can, you can, you can trace all this stuff back to Natalie Portman's, uh, you know, literary proud. I mean, she's a Harvard grad. Of course she's got, you know, good taste. Oh, the, the Wachowskis did option the novel, but Tom Tykver was the first to reveal it to the world. There okay. You go. Well, V for Vendetta was 2005, and Paris Jatem is 2006. Okay. So there's a chance she may have introduced the book to all three of these filmmakers. She was supposed to star in the movie, but... Uh, she was. <laughs> yeah. In retrospect, it's probably best that she didn't. In what role? She, she was supposed to be the Son Son Mi. Son, 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 oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a, a bit of whitewashing that may have flown a little better uh, a decade ago. Certainly wouldn't fly today, and ultimately wouldn't have aged very well, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'm going to ask you two quick questions before we wrap up. Okay. What does the blind woman at the phone booth represent to you? Oh gosh, um, she represented a blind woman at a phone booth. Okay. Fair yeah, enough. I didn't think much deeper than that. Sorry. Do you have a Do you have a theory? No, I don't. I did, these are just a couple of the sort of <laughs> questions, lingering questions I have. She represents the, the lack of empathy that time has on you, right? She, she has no... Time is blind, Matt. It, it doesn't care about what you need or what you want. It's going to keep on <laughs> chugging along no matter what you do. I like that. I've, I've heard that love and justice are blind. I've never really heard that time is blind, but I think I agree with that. Yeah, time is blind. Uh, what does the security guard represent? The guy who basically opens the movie, narrates the opening of the movie, and uh, he's the one who kicks the soccer ball at the beginning, and then he has a he has a narratively important heart attack at one point. What does he represent to you? Oh wow, that's a good one. I've I've thought about that guy. I'm I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't have a good answer now. I can bullshit. What do you got? I mean, when she shows up at the bank the second time, he says, "You finally came." Yeah, yeah. Meaning that he actually has memory of the previous reality. Yeah. Right? And her memories of the previous reality inform decisions she makes in this reality, right? Mm-hmm. So the film is basically taking leaps or making making decision making narrative decisions based on the fact that certain characters have memory of previous versions of the rea- of the of the now. Okay, so maybe this whole movie is based on video games, right? And maybe this this guy's a non-playing character okay. and and Lola has gets game over first two times. Yep, that's exactly what happens. And then she finally figures it out. So yeah, he's just been waiting for the actual player one to show up he's the narratively significant npc yeah right non-playable character i love yeah. that um go. because he really is i mean he in a lot of ways he's kind of like the narrator of the film right and then he has a heart attack and she brings him back to life right doesn't she pump doesn't she pump his heart and bring him back to life yeah she uses a cure the cure potion on her the phoenix down <laughs> on the uh <laughs> It's a little Final Fantasy reference for everybody out there. <laughs> but she brings him back to life before she goes to the casino or after? And, and the reason that I'm asking is because is is her bringing him back to life proof she needs that she can actually alter reality, that she actually can can take, that she has dominion over time and chance 
and probability and reality. Wow, that's some deep shit. Uh, <laughs> I'm telling I'm you, man. There's a lot I'm going just, on. I'm just gonna, movie. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and say yes. I think exactly okay. yes. Yeah, I'm telling you. I, I really feel like this movie has a reputation for being faux deep. Yeah. For being a film, you know, like Requiem for a Dream or whatever, that is just a perennial, you know, dorm room philosophizing classic. Mm-hmm. But I think that upon rewatch, anyone who hasn't seen it in a while might realize that it's actually that there's actually a lot more going on with it. All right. That it's actually one of the unsung films of 1999 that doesn't get talked about enough. It's definitely worth your time, no matter how deep you think it is. But maybe I'll rewatch it and I'll, I'll hit some more, gain some more uh, profundity from it. There's we'll worse see. ways to spend 80 minutes, I'll tell you that. That's absolutely true. All right, I think that's a good place to wrap up, Matt. Any any final thoughts? Just in terms of the uh, you know faux intellectualizing or a <laughs> film that is like uh, forcing its depth on you, uh, it does open with, with a T.S. Eliot quote. <laughs> yes. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all of our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Don't know what it means, but I love it. Uh, well, we where we started was Retrospectating 1999, and we're going to end with saying goodbye, everybody. This has been Retrospectating 1999, Lola Rent. So until next time, what's what's next in this in this uh, podcast series, Matt? We're going to double up this month because June was a big year in 1999. So next we will be going to the opposite end of the spectrum and watching South Park Bigger, Longer, and Uncut. Ooh, I'm very, very excited to talk about South Park. All right, until next time. Bye, Matt. Auf Wiedersehen.